This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to On the Cover, a weekly Mad Splainers feature. I'm podcast producer Natalie Yar, and each week I sit down with the reporter behind our latest cover story to find out why it matters. Today I'm talking with Cap Times investigative reporter Caitlin Farrell, who's been looking into the role of the district attorney's office in Dane County's racial disparities. Welcome to the podcast, Caitlin. Hi, Natalie. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So you note in your story that the protest movement sparked by the death of George Floyd has led to increasing scrutiny of police, but that there's been less attention to the role of prosecutors. What should we know about how district attorneys can address or perpetuate racial disparities in the legal system? Sure. So the criminal justice system is is pretty complex and there's a lot of different people involved with a variety of roles that have a variety of effects. And so because the police officers are sort of the first line of that and they're very visible and present in the streets, I think there's been a lot of attention on that and rightly so. But I think, you know, what a lot of people don't really realize unless maybe they themselves have gone through or participated in the criminal justice system in that way is just understanding, you know, so the police makes an arrest and then what's next? Um, what are the array of kind of avenues and options and choices that can happen from that? And the reality is, is that the person on the local level that would make a decision about what happens after an arrest is made is the district attorney. And so, you know, there can be behavior that exists and a, a DA, a district attorney, can choose to charge it and or prosecute it or not prosecute it in a variety of ways. And then they can decide whether to do that at a misdemeanor level or a felony level. And so folks who studied this issue really believe and see that the DA has has a real ability to not only make decisions that affect someone's trajectory when they enter the court system, but they also can play a big role in how they interact with police officers as well and, you know, how how they use the types of reports and then arrests and referrals that police make. So if we believe that police are disproportionately arresting people of color or profiling them in any one way, the DA's office could be a check on that by deciding not to charge cases that they feel don't have merit if they feel that someone's being racially profiled. I think also, uh, like I note in the story, there's been a lot of research done about how misdemeanors can really rack up. And so this is why I decided in this story to really focus on this one program that the DA has. And as a quite, it's a program that's quite common in uh, DA's offices across the country, which is a deferred prosecution or a first offenders program. So if people generally agree that they want to find alternatives to incarceration and find ways for people to avoid jail time, then I think that that type of program or agreement and how that's run could really play a big role in reducing those types of numbers when we look at how many people of color are arrested, what types of crimes they're charged with, how long they spend in prison. Um, the tricky part is, of course, balancing you know, public safety and I guess, punishment for crimes with those types of disparities and why they're happening. So it's pretty complex, but that's kind of why I I, th- I think that the DA has a big role in that that many people don't realize. Yeah. And Dane County's current district attorney, Ishmael Ozan, he's been in office for a decade. So why write this story at this point? 
in part, it is, I think, a good time to revisit him because he has been in office quite a while, a full decade now. He originally was appointed to the role. He's the first African-American district attorney in the state of Wisconsin, and he was appointed by Governor Jim Doyle. And I thought it was just notable given that he just reached his 10-year anniversary in July. He is running unopposed into another four-year term. And all of that combined with the fact that there's sort of a an outsized interest and scrutiny on the types of issues that he has really a direct, he can play a direct role in, I thought made it a good time to write about him. In addition to that, I had been hearing from sources across the spectrum of, of roles for a while questioning um, some of the things that he's done and really wanting to hear more from him about what he was doing, particularly in this moment. And you talked with more than a dozen people who work with the county's legal system, including some who previously worked in the district attorney's office. What do they say isn't working? So the people that I talked with, um, many of them defense attorneys who are private defense attorneys now and some public defenders, meaning that public defenders would be folks who represent people who don't have the means to hire an attorney and are accused of a crime. They really highlighted what they felt was just an ongoing widening disparity between the, what we see as far as the number of juvenile black kids who are arrested and the prison rates. Um, I highlighted a series of statistics in the story, but they really highlighted what they felt was a real inconsistency between what DA Ozan has said that he is all about and wants to do and the reality of what's actually happened in the county. And, and then again, how that reality is related to the policies that his office has promoted and perpetuated over the last decade. And so the argument that many of the sources I've spoken to have have talked about just is that, like I had mentioned before, it's that the DA has a lot of latitude to make sweeping changes in how he's deciding to charge cases and how aggressively he wants to try to, you know, how aggressively he wants to try to divert people of color out of the criminal justice system and the way that he wants to do that. And, you know, those types of policy decisions, um, as I think we'll talk about later, has started to happen in some DA's offices across the country. And they're they're really quite controversial in many ways. I mean, I think that, um, again, there's a balance between, you know, trying to rightly, you know, in his view, punish people for crimes they commit, preserve the public safety, and also represent the rights of victims who are the victims of these crimes, but then also really trying to get at the root causes of what's causing crime and, again, try to really limit and and close that gap. And so, you know, the big grievance that the folks that I talk to have is just that he is not, as they would define it, a progressive prosecutor, meaning he's not a prosecutor that recognizes what we're doing right now doesn't work, and he's not really willing to make sweeping kind of innovative changes to really find a different way. And so that kind of hypocrisy that that they identify is really what they're big, what they say is really going wrong. Got it. Because Ozan talks about racial disparities. This is This is something he has made a campaign point before. It is. Yeah, this is something he's talked about before and has really, as far as the things that he talks about, is he says it's a priority. And when I had asked him, when I asked him questions for this story, he pointed to several trainings that his he and his staff go through as far as understanding these issues and, and incorporating them into how they do their jobs. And he's rallied for more funding for a couple different 
programs, which I can go into later. But the point I think that the defense attorneys and others that I talk to you know, what they say is that the office continues to be plagued by a high rate of turnover. Some say that in other ways it's mismanaged as well, and that there are things that wouldn't really cost money as far as funding a whole new office or a position that just a a philosophical change in the way that they do their jobs that could really go a long way. And so they say that there's a lot of rhetoric around these ideas and the importance of that. But as far as concrete policies, that's really going to be changing the way that business is done. We don't see any of that from Ozan, and we haven't seen it in the last decade he's been in office. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. Several of your sources pointed to problems in this program called the First Offenders Program that you mentioned earlier. What were their concerns about that program? So their concerns about that program were uh, were really a couple things. That program is one that's been held up by the DA's office as kind of their shining example as one way that they really are looking to divert people out of jail um, and out of the criminal justice system potentially. But a couple criticisms are just that it's been really plagued by a series of backlogs in recent years. And so it apparently had backlogs where there would be, the DA's office would agree to have someone enter the program, but then the person really didn't hear anything for like months about whether they were in the program or not. They were kind of waiting in this limbo where they had to live by the conditions of their bail and couldn't really move forward. You know, one common overarching theme is just a real lack of transparency about how it works and how many people have been admitted to it and then the demographics of those people and the likelihood that it reoffend, like the people reoffend. So I'll note that I still don't really know the answers to those questions. The DA's office did an audit uh, of the program last August, and I made a records request to get the results of that audit, and they would not give it to me. So I'm still working and pushing back on that because I would like the results, even if they have to be redacted. But I think, you know, for the attorneys actually working in the system that are trying to figure out how they might get their clients into that program, from what they told me, there's really not a lot known about how they can get clients into the program. Attorneys told me that, that you know, it, it ultimately is completely up to the DA whether they decide to let someone into the program. And There hasn't really been, as far as, again, what the defense attorneys tell me, a great outline about what the spirit or the vision is. And there hasn't been much collaboration, according to them, about how that um, how they really can, like, from both ends, make the program work as effectively as possible. Um, I think one other problem that several defense attorneys pointed out to me that they find to be unfair is that these types of agreements, like I had mentioned before, do exist in different counties, but the, the Dane County program works a little bit different. So in other counties, it can be as simple as just a general agreement between the prosecutor and the defense attorney to defer prosecution. And in Dane County, the program is a little more formal and the defendant who enters the program works with a counselor who works in the DA's office, but the counselor comes up with the terms of a contract that the defendant must abide by in order to complete the program, but the defendant is not able to see the specific terms of the contract before they sign it. So that's something that a few attorneys brought up to me that they felt was problematic, but it's kind of, again, unclear exactly what 
the problems with the program were and what the audit found because they won't let me see the results. But all in all, I think people would like to have more transparency about what's actually going on with it. Yeah. What does Ozan say? What does he think is the problem? So when I asked Ozan um, these types of questions for my story, he he didn't comment, I guess, too much more on the Deferred Prosecution and First Offenders Program. He did say that he denied my request for the audit because he said that the audit contained specific information from cases who had gone through it and that releasing it would um, would hurt the program as it currently exists and also hamper rehabilitative efforts for the future and potentially it could harm public safety. So when it comes to the types of policies his office is enacting to combat the disparities, he pointed to a variety of trainings, like a a whole list of trainings that he and his staff are doing that they had done back in starting in 2018 and that they plan to do through this year and into the next year so that his, he and his prosecutors can can be more equity focused and be up to date with with those types of policies. He also highlighted that he is going to he has asked the county for funding to hire a social justice coordinator, which could be really a central point person in his office to make sure that the office is really up to date with best practices for how to deal with these types of issues and that is forward thinking in that way. Um, I highlight one case regarding the deferred prosecution program where a former judge even found that it was pretty inconsistently and unfairly used. And the DA actually admitted that he was wrong in that case in offering that defendant the deal the way that he did. And he also acknowledged that he felt that outside of his office in particular, he could do better when it comes to really working on these issues and that he plans to do so. And so he didn't go too much more beyond that as far as offering saying that his office was going to change its philosophy or, you know, implement a new policy. But he did mention that. And I'll note that he responded to my questions in about a six, it's a six page kind of response. And I plan to post all of that with the article online. So if someone is particularly interested to read what his word, what his responses were in his own words, they can do that online with the story. That's very interesting. And his critics, what do they think of what he's proposing? So the common criticism of him is that it's often just vague um, and not a lot of like specific concrete changes. You know, it's unclear if he's going to be able to get money to to hire the person that he wants to hire. Um, and I think, you know, I had talked to one source who works with the county who just mentioned that the county budget is really tight. And I think that there's a desire for people to kind of have his office find ways to make changes um, and change the culture there too in ways that don't require hiring someone else necessarily or spending a lot of money on like an expensive new program. And you mentioned before, you know, this wave we hear about of progressive prosecutors taking office across the country in places like St. Louis and Philadelphia, um, but that Ozan's critics say he they say they would like to see him being more progressive. What are some of the kind of signature uh, steps some of these quote-unquote progressive prosecutors have taken that they'd like to see here? My understanding from what they are doing, and I haven't, to be honest, done a, a super thorough study of that, is I think that they are 
much more aggressive when it comes to the types of people that they're putting in a deferred prosecution program and that they're diverting from prison. I mentioned, yeah, places like the DA from the former DA, I think from Ferguson, Missouri and in Philadelphia are like taking not just maybe offenders that have very low level types of allegations or crimes against them, but really people that have more serious types of of crimes and and trying to find ways to divert them as well. I think that that's one thought that in order to really have an impact, you have to kind of move beyond, again, like a very narrow, low level look at the people that might qualify for these programs and try to really broaden it. And so when that's happened in those cities, I, I had read, I think there is definitely a lot of blowback and controversy for that. But I think that that's what some people want to see happen here as well. Yeah. And you mentioned that bail jumping might be a part of this also, the way that Wisconsin handles that. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you did a report on this, I know, earlier, but Wisconsin is one of just a few states in the country that approach bail jumping in the way that it does, where, you know, when you go to court, you you get a list of conditions And if you violate any one of those conditions as it amounts to your bail, then you can be charged with an additional crime. And you can rack up more felonies or misdemeanors depending on what your crime was if you break curfew or drink or or anything like that. And so, so yeah, that's one example where several attorneys pointed out to me that they'd really like to see changes there in how bail jumping is charged. That could be just one small way that could have a real impact on that because, again, there very well could be reasons why someone someone isn't intending to just, you know, not show up for court and, and they don't really intend to violate the conditions of their bail. But if there's other kind of extenuating circumstances that might happen in some cases, depending on what the bail conditions are, um, and that can disproportionately hurt people of color and or low income people who already are struggling. Right. So what's next in this reporting? What are you watching for? So that's a good question. (laughs) Um, I guess it'll be interesting to see, you know, what comes out of the story as far as any response or changes. I think I'm interested in general in digging into a couple of the cases that uh, went through that office in past years. So we'll see, you know, what I can do with that. But I guess it kind of remains to be seen. I, in my reporting, I kind of jump from one topic to the next. But um, I know that you've done a lot of work on on good work on bail jumping, but that is an issue that I am interested in. I wonder if there's more to be done as far as that as well, because I think that that seems to be something statewide that really contributes to this problem the way that DAs charge it. Yeah, it's a in, in my opinion, it's a fascinating issue that most of us know so little about. So I'd, I'd love to see more on that. Yeah, totally. Caitlin, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Sure. Thank you, Natalie. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Cap Times investigative reporter Caitlin Farrell, whose reporting takes a close look at the policies and institutions shaping life in Wisconsin. Tune in next week for a conversation about our next cover story. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to The Mad Splainers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you do your listening, and leave us a review while you're there. Also, be sure to check out our other podcasts, including The Corner Table, all about food and drink in Madison, and Wedge Issues, all about state politics. Until next time, thanks for listening.
This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.